I don't think it's invalid for people to wonder if you understand their issues. I do believe it's invalid to decide that because I don't have your shared experience, I can't understand. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and author of the Politico Playbook. It's been a few months since former Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams lost in a highly contested election against Georgia's Secretary of State Brian Kemp. I did not fit the normative sense of what a candidate should be, but I was the right candidate for the job. What's next for Abrams? There's a lot of speculation she could run for one of Georgia's seats in the Senate in 2020. She's also evangelizing about how her home state is key for Democrats looking to win the White House. We transformed the electorate of the state in a way that cannot be reversed. And every candidate, especially everyone who thinks they want to be president, needs to understand that the road to success comes through Georgia. Our conversation in a minute on Women Rule, produced by Politico in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. Today's episode is sponsored by Monica and Andy. Expecting a baby is so exciting, but it can be overwhelming. That's where Monica and Andy come in. Their mix and match blankets and clothing are made with super soft organic cotton, and every order comes wrapped with a gift-ready bow, which is a lifesaver when you're on the baby shower circuit. Best part? Founder Monica Royer is committed to building a company that gives women the opportunity to grow their careers while growing their families. Because there's no one-size-fits-all way to do the mom thing. Visit www.monicaandandy.com and use Women Rule at checkout for 10% off your first order. And now, here's Stacey Abrams. Well, Stacey, thank you so much for joining us on Women Rule. Uh, it's been a few months since the election. You were running for governor. Tell us a little bit about what you've been up to since then. Well, on the night of the election, I told folks I wanted to make sure every vote counted. On the day I did my non-concession speech, I decided that did not exactly happen. And so I launched a new organization called Fair Fight Georgia. We are working on electoral reforms that will ensure that anyone who runs for office in Georgia or around the country can truly believe that their votes count. To catch our listeners up a little bit, you, the group filed a lawsuit against the Secretary of State for gross mismanagement of the election system. The Secretary of State's office then responded to your lawsuit, citing increased voter registration in Georgia. What's your reaction to, to that? Increased voter registration occurred despite the Secretary of State, not because of his work. My organization, although I, I no longer lead it, I started an organization called the New Georgia Project, which registered more than 200,000 voters over the course of two and a half years. Those voters faced a gauntlet of challenges from his office. He purged more voters than any secretary of state in recent history that we can find. And worse, he made it difficult for those who made it through the gauntlet of registration to actually use their right to vote because polling places were closed under his leadership absentee ballots were denied, provisional ballots were made unavailable. And so I think it is a facile argument to suggest that because people did something despite your actions that you should get credit for their perseverance. (laughs) What's the next steps there? I mean, you know, do you need to try to get him out of office or besides that? So part of what I did on November 16th in my speech was acknowledge two things. We live in a democracy and democracy is flawed. It has challenges. It depends on the goodwill of those who are involved. And unfortunately, we believe that that goodwill was not met by good action. But I acknowledge that the numbers as they stand and the laws as they exist allowed him to manipulate the system to his end. 
However, my responsibility as an American, as a Georgian, as someone who believes in the resilience of our democracy says that we have to call out problems when we see them and, tr and fight for change. And therefore, Fair Fight Georgia is going to fight for electoral change first through the courts, uh, hence our lawsuit. But we're also working on advocacy issues, making certain that the replacement machines that are being offered in the state of Georgia, Georgia has 16-year-old machines that are considered the most insecure in the country. We are working to make certain that the replacement sh machines are actually good machines that make sense. Uh, we are working to make certain that those 1.9 million voters who showed up, 700,000 of whom had not voted in a Democrat, sorry, voted in a midterm election, that we encourage them to remain engaged. We don't want them to be dissuaded by voter suppression. And for me, writ large, it's about making sure people understand this isn't about me being able to benefit from the change. I don't get to win an election if our court case is successful. And that's not why I did this. I did this because every vote should count. That is the promise we make as a democracy. And that's my responsibility. If I want to say that I'm a public servant, then I serve the public, not myself. How big of a difference do you think it would make if they were successful in bringing the Voter Rights Act back? It would have transformed this election. Many of the actions taken by the Secretary of State were taken post the erosion of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, the closure of polling places, the denial of access to provisional ballots, the erratic application of absentee ballot rules, the ability to purge voters with very limited notice and with, I would say, suspect criteria. All of these are things that were prohibited because these states had to pre-clear their bad actions. And often something that sounds good on paper when put before a court that actually has the best interest of the least uh, powerful in mind, you find that those things don't make, don't make the grade. Mm -hmm. I want to shift gears a little bit. You've had a lot of firsts. You were the first black woman to be a major party nominee for governor in the history of the country, the first woman to lead either party in the Georgia General Assembly. This means you get to open a lot of doors for people to follow you. But it also must be challenging. Um, when you became one, one story that I found interesting is when you became the House Minority Leader, they told you you had to have a man accompany you to meet with the governor. That, they did away with that obviously quickly. But tell me about that experience. So this was within my caucus. Uh, I was the first woman to lead a party, and I was the first African American to lead in the House. And I was also younger than most of the folks who had been in power for a while. And I don't think they could figure out exactly why they weren't happy. <laughs> <laughs> but the first time I went to negotiate with the governor on an issue, I came back with a pretty good deal. But they couldn't imagine that the deal I was able to secure could have been the best possible deal because, well, they weren't there with me. And so a cohort of men, and it was entirely men, it was entirely men who were older than I am, uh, but it was multiracial. <laughs> they uh, suggested that I should not be allowed to go and negotiate with the governor again unless I took one of them with me. And I pointed out that I was the leader, and no. My, my job did not come with that caveat, and I was not going to accept it. How did they take it? I did not leave a lot of room for conversation about this. Mm -hmm. I, I think my responsibility as leader was to engage every member and to hear their ideas. But my responsibility as leader was to shut down stupid ideas. <laughs> and I did so very quickly and I think fairly efficiently because they never tried it again. Do you have other stories where you think your race or gender was a factor in the way people were treating you? Oh, absolutely. I 
served on a committee, uh, the uh, Veterans Affairs Committee, and one of the members kept thinking I was the secretary for the committee, <laughs> not realizing I was a member because there had not been a, uh, I don't know if there had never been a black woman, but I don't think within his tenure mm-hmm. that he'd seen one. Often I would push for ideas and people would ascribe to me beliefs or uh, rationales that had nothing to do with why I was doing it. But it also allowed me a great deal of latitude that I don't think people often understand. When you're underestimated, people sometimes just don't pay attention to you. Mm-hmm. And so as a Democratic leader leading, I, we were in the deep minority. We were only f- um, one vote away from being in a super minority, meaning Republicans could pass anything they wanted, including constitutional amendments without Democrats. I was able to navigate and negotiate deals with the Tea Party to block votes that the majority wanted. I was able to work with the majority to block things that their more conservative members wanted, in part because people didn't think that I would get the access that I had, but also because having been a minority, I was able to anticipate and think about things in a different way. I like to remind people when I stood for leader, one of the things I told my caucus members at the time when I stood the first time, it's like, look, I've been a minority for a very long time. I am really good at it. <laughs> and that means both gender and race, but also sometimes age and resources. I had come from a low-income community, so I understood how to do a lot with very little. I always say that to women who ask me for advice about this. Being underestimated, I think, can be one of the oh, biggest assets absolutely. if you look at it that way. Absolutely. How did you... Bring us a little bit further back. How did you first get involved in politics, get an interest in it? So I think my earliest memory of politics came about because my parents would, number one, take with, take us with them to vote. My mom and dad would, my mom usually, because my dad was still working, would pick us up from school. And then when she would go and vote, we would go into the voting booth with her. Now, there are six of us. So it was like make way for ducklings. <laughs> when we would go in, she would make certain we understood that she was voting. I think sometimes she was concerned that we would repeat things too loudly. (laughs) But I understood voting mattered because my mom thought it was important to take us. My parents also believed that we should volunteer. Even though we were poor, they would take us to volunteer in soup kitchens and homeless shelters. And when we would ask why, their answer was, you know, no matter how little you have, there's someone with less. Your job is to serve that person. And I believed that. But I also believed that it was deeply inefficient that, you know, eight black people were supposed to solve the poverty of Mississippi. And so I said, shouldn't there be a better way to do this? And my parents said, that's called government. Government is supposed to help people do better and take care of themselves. And sometimes it doesn't work. And that's why you have nonprofit organizations. That's why churches step in. And I became fascinated with what government was supposed to be. And then the first time I actually became involved in the political campaign, at the end of my senior year of high school, I was hired to be an assistant on a congressional campaign. I was basically a secretary. And I was given a speech to type. And I did not like the speech, and so I made some edits. And, and in my defense, I mean, think about that now. <laughs> in my defense, my, my parents were both in graduate school during my last two years of high school, and my job was to, to type their papers, and I would edit their papers as well. Sometimes they agree with my edit, sometimes they did not. And I clearly was too arrogant to know that I shouldn't do that, so I edited the speech. But the candidate liked it so much, I became the speechwriter for his campaign. He did not win, but it was not because of his speeches. Women Rule will be back after a brief word from our sponsor, Monica and Andy. Expecting a baby is so exciting, but let's be honest, it can be kind of overwhelming. That's where Monica and Andy come in. From baby blankets to clothing, Monica and Andy make it easier with colors and prints that are designed to work together. 
All made with super soft, GOTS certified organic cotton. Every order comes hand-wrapped with a gift-ready bow, which is a lifesaver when you're a guest on the baby shower circuit. Best part? Founder and main mom in charge, Monica Royer, is committed to building a company that gives women the opportunity to grow their professional careers while growing their families. They know there's no one-size-fits-all way to do the mom thing. It's motherhood done your way. Visit www.monicaandandy.com and use Women Rule at checkout for 10% off your first order. So talk to me about running as a woman. Obviously, that's all you've ever run as, but um, it's something we focus a lot on in this 2018 cycle because for the first time, you really saw women embracing gender, embracing the messiness of life, of family, and all those things. How did you approach it? With honesty. I, I think the first responsibility I had was to be very clear that I did not fit the normative sense of what a candidate should be, but I was the right candidate for the job. Uh, there were those who called into question the fact that I wear my hair naturally. There were those who were put off by the fact that I'm a statuesque black woman. Uh, there were some who thought that because of my race, I wouldn't be viable as a candidate. Uh, others questioned my sexual orientation because I'm not married. As I pointed out, I'm an ally of the LGBTQ community. I'm just really not good at dating uh, or haven't had a lot of time to do it. And but But in each of those spaces, there was a question about who I was and what that meant about my ability to serve. I don't think it's invalid for people to wonder if you understand their issues. I do believe it's invalid to decide that because I don't have your shared experience, I can't understand. Mm -hmm. And so my responsibility was to, instead of hiding from those questions, confront them and to make certain people understood that, no, I don't have children of my own, but I've got nieces and nephews. I am financially responsible for my parents and for my niece who my parents are raising. And so while I may not have children of my own, I get what it means to worry about housing for kids and making sure there's a babysitter. I understand aging parents and making sure they have access to the health care they need. I may not have the traditional family that we're told we're supposed to see, but as a woman, my experiences mean that I don't get a distance from those challenges. In mm -hmm. fact, we all experience them, which is why all of us have to be a part of solu the solution. What advice would you give to other women considering running? Number one, know why you're running. Do not run for office simply because an office is available. This is hard work. It's hard getting there. It's hard staying there. And if it's not the right fit, you are going to be miserable. Number two, do not be afraid to ask for money. In our campaign, we raised more money than any candidate, Democrat or Republican in Georgia history. And that was very taxing. I'm an introvert. Asking people for their money is the moral equivalent to me of asking people for their kidneys. Um, although at least the kidneys I understand. But, <laughs> but, but it's hard. And, and yeah. for women, it's hard to ask for money because we are ashamed that we have to or we're reticent about doing so. And what I remind myself and everyone of, I don't get to keep it. Right. You're investing in the vision I have for the job I intend to do. And don't be afraid to ask. The worst that can happen is someone says no. My dad used to tell me, don't tell yourself no, let other people tell you no. It doesn't, you don't like it, but it's better than you deciding you can't do it. And then the third is run not without fear, but with harnessed fear. Use it as a motivator and not as an impediment. Do you think how you were treated in the governor's race might discourage other women from running? I think it could, but I worked hard to make certain I didn't let any of those challenges go unanswered. When people raised the question of my race, I talked about it. When they raised the question 
of my personal style. I like the way I dress and I came up with ways to remain authentically me, but recognize that yes, people are looking to make certain I could represent them. And, and that's part of where this comes from. I recognized that issues of race and gender and the intersectionality scares people. Mm-hmm. And therefore my responsibility was to confront it and talk about it and demystify it because ignoring it wasn't going to work. But it also gave me the space to have conversations that we normally do not have in politics, especially in the Deep South. And I am proud of the fact that as a woman and as a woman of color, I was able to create a pathway where more women can do this. So yes, they're going to be discouraged, but hopefully they will see from the tremendous results we had that it's worth the fight. So... I want to look to the future a little bit. There's a lot of talk about you running for Senate in 2020. Give us a look into your mind and your your mind space on that. I tend to use a a three metric rubric for most of the things I do. (laughs) (laughs) Keeps it simple. It does. It does. And in this case, number one is, am I the right person for the job? I do not believe in running for jobs just because they're available. I need to know that I'm the right person. Second question is, do I bring the right skills uh, for the jobs that are available? Am I the person who has the best skills to make that job real? And is it the right time? Uh, There are things I want to do, but now may not be the moment for doing so. And so I think my decision making over the next few months, and I'm going to make a decision by the end of March, it's going to be grounded in, am I the right person? Is it the right job? And is now the right time? Are you seeking advice and counsel? In, in my way. I, I think that it's wrong-headed to make decisions without ac- you know, adequate information. And so, yes, I've recently <laughs> met with people who've done this job before who are currently doing the jobs. Um, I've had folks approach me and ask me to think about running for almost every office you can imagine in 2020. And I'm listening to them. I'm looking at the data they're providing. I'm thinking about the pathways they describe. But fundamentally, I have to decide that I'm the right one. And the fire in the belly. I mean, it's, as you said, I mean, it's a tough slog. Well, I, I, I will run for office again because I believe that poverty is immoral. I believe that it is economically inefficient, but I believe it is solvable. I believe as a core responsibility, I have a set of skills. I sound like Liam Neeson from Taken, but uh, <laughs> I have a special set of skills. And, <laughs> so. and I want to use them to improve the world around me. I'm an introvert, which means that campaigning is painful. But the benefits of being able to go into a community and have someone tell me, I remember when you stood up for us on this issue, and because of that, I'm raising my grandchild and I have more resources. I remember you coming to my North Georgia community where we don't have Democrats and you help me sign up to get health care. I'm never going to vote for you, but I'm not going to vote against you. Those moments remind me of why I do this, and that's why I'm going to keep running. So you made the case in your governor's bid that Democrats can win in Georgia. Yes. Uh, obviously, that didn't pan out the way you well, were hoping. Well, no, actually, we did win. <laughs> well, talk about that, though, because there was a lot on the national stage in Washington. There was a lot of focus on this race because mm-hmm. and excitement and for Democrats because – the South is not where they, they've uh, been doing well. How do you think Democrats can win in the South? And I, I'm not being facetious when I say we did win. 
in the end, the numbers as they were counted did not give me the governor's seat. But we tripled the Latino turnout in the state of Georgia. We tripled the Asian Pacific Islander turnout. 1.2 million African Americans voted in 2018. 1.1 million Democrats voted in 2014. We increased the youth vote, 18 to 30-year-olds, by their participation rate increased by 139%. And despite the most egregious voter suppression in recent history, the margin of difference was 54,000 votes in a state with more than 3.9 million voters who turned out. And that was with a 56% voter turnout rate. All of that is to say that what we did demonstrates that I'm right, that we are right. We did so by treating every single pool of voters, every cohort as valuable and persuadable. We did so by starting on the ground, staying on the ground. We certainly used media, but we did not abandon the responsibility for direct voter contact and for true conversations about the issues that matter. I need everyone to understand that Georgia is not only viable, we took a congressional seat that was drawn for Newt Gingrich. (laughs) And we won that seat. We flipped, we won 14 legislative races in the state level. Republicans are now in a very different position than they expect it to be. All of that happened because of our campaign. And so while I did not claim the ultimate prize, we transformed the electorate of the state in a way that cannot be reversed. And every candidate, especially everyone who thinks they want to be president, needs to understand that the road to success comes through Georgia. Would you have a different strategy to to run again? Or do you think that this, I mean, clearly you just rattle off a lot of statistics of success. I mean, is it just kind of like doubling down on that playbook? Absolutely. Because again, voter, voter suppression is a continuum. But the reason it's so effective and pernicious is that you don't see it happening. It begins with who gets registered, and then it continues with who gets access to the ballot, and then it ends with whose ballot gets counted. And it's not this great, massive moment. It is these tiny interstitial pieces that by the time you get to the end, the electorate is transformed and no one really noticed because it's one person and one vote, but the amalgamation has an effect. My belief is that the challenge for us was not the voters, it was the process. And that's why I'm focused so much on the process. And not just for me, but for anyone who runs. The demography of Georgia is different. The composition is different. The mission is different. And we have to have candidates who respect that difference, and I do. And so, no, I would not run a different campaign, except that I would do more to push back against voter suppression. We thought we'd done everything we needed to. We, we, we were pretty assiduous in it. But he'd been at it longer. So I want to shift to 2020. There's been kind of mentioned it a few times. Uh, but before we talk about specific candidates and, and kind of your thoughts on that, I do think, you know, when we hear it's, it's Iowa, it's New Hampshire, it's South Carolina, you, Georgia doesn't kind of come up in that conversation a lot. Explain a little bit what you mean by the presidency for Democrats goes through Georgia. Sure. So the first four contests in the presidential election will be Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada great. But Super Tuesday will include Georgia. And so in the primary, it's important because Georgia's got one of the biggest buckets of uh, opportunity for collecting delegates. We're one of the larger states, Mm -hmm. or the eighth largest state in the nation. But to win the electoral votes in the general election, 
there are states that once were contested states that just simply are not available anymore. And if you want to replace one of those states where the demography now says that Democrats have a very difficult time, simply because the value sets there are just no longer aligned with Democratic values, Mm -hmm. we've demonstrated that Georgia is viable. And I did this as a statewide candidate in an off-year election. Imagine what happens with the resources and the national air cover of a presidential campaign. Anyone who wants to make certain that we do not lose the White House as Democrats because of 70,000 odd votes spread across three states, Georgia is one of the states you want to look at. 16 electoral votes available to transform an election. That is meaningful, and that's what we offer. And we're pretty low, you know, we're not a heavy investment state. We don't right. have the LA market, you know, yeah. media market. We've got Atlanta. <laughs> And then you've got other media markets, but they're reasonably priced. <laughs> so you can come and tell your story to a lot of folks at a very good discount. Do you think Democrats, the potential candidates, are taking Georgia as seriously as they need to? I think they will. I was very heartened by the number of potential candidates who came to support my race. And while I think they liked me, I think they also came down because they understood the importance of Georgia as an emerging battleground state. I think that if you watch the, the current conversations about those who are really publicly talking about their their opportunities, they're speaking about the issues that were echoed in my campaign. And I'm not suggesting that I'm the reason that happened, but one of the opportunities is that Georgia is one of the most diverse states that will be on the table. Mm-hmm. And we are the only deep South state that I think is truly in play. And we know that it's going to be harder and harder to win in the Midwest. So come South, we've got opportunity for you. Are you close to any of the expected 2020 candidates? Are you talking to them? I am friends with a few of them because we've just known each other for a while and because of the level of support they gave. Um, I admire all of them, um, the, those who took the time to come and support my campaign. I got to know each of them. I spent time with each of them. And I respect the ambition that all of them have to do more for our country. And so I look forward to the race. I look forward to the contest of ideas. And my hope is that we as Democrats and we as Americans really give all of them the careful consideration they're due. So you're not looking to throw your hat behind somebody right away? Right now I am focused on making sure that when they come to Georgia, we can roll out the welcome mat. All right. Well, Stacey, thank you so much. This has been delightful. I appreciate it. Our show was produced by Jenny Ament. Our booker is Jessica Andrews. Dave Shaw is the executive producer of Politico Audio. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media. And follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. 